Hello and welcome to Play to Find Out, the podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. I'm Arthur, or Art Projects. And I'm Eamon, or Voidlight, on the Dungeon World Discord server. Arthur, listen to my voice. Oh my goodness me, it is coming in so crisp. I got a new mic. It's wonderful. <laughs> in HD uh. audio, the first episode. We, are we going to make one of those statements that's like, if you don't mind the audio quality of our earlier episodes? No, the audio quality of our earlier episodes is fine, except for that one episode where it was very, very much fine-ish. It was okay. See, that's don't the worry about I wanted. It. We start yeah. great and get better on play. Exactly. Thanks to the impeccable uh, audio production tool set that, Auda- <laughs> that uh, Audacity and Reaper combined can yield. Anyway, we're getting off the topic a little bit. Let's talk about some recent games. Let's talk about some recent games. So I started a game with a new group recently, uh, intended to be a one shot, but we quickly discovered that we're probably just going to play a whole campaign together, which is really exciting. Um, And I had kind of a weird experience in my one shot. I had somebody pick the emulator class and not play it like a total arsonist. Huh, I had someone who <laughs> was having a hard time picking a playbook. I feel like, you know, th- this is a friend of mine from work uh, who was vaguely interested in getting involved in the whole gaming thing. And so I had him and then a handful of other people over and none of the playbooks were really, you know, sticking out to him until I introduced the emulator. And the way I introduced the emulator is typically I'll say, you know, an emulator is kind of part firebender, part cult leader. And it clicked with him immediately. And I could see it in his eyes the second I said cult leader. He immediately was sold. So this was a first time Dungeon World player? First time Dungeon World player had never played a tabletop game before, which is usually the kind of uh, the kind of player, the kind of group where the emulator is a really dicey prospect. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I've, always, I've had emulators at my table that are very much just there to destroy things and make the game worse for everybody else. They in tend, my experience... It tends as a, Sorry. The, uh, I was I was saying in my experience, the players that are new to fantasy RPGs are the ones that can stand off and to surprise you because they don't have the tropes that you're expecting. Totally, you know, like, no preconceived notion. He's not exposed notion. yet to that like just crazy arsonist, so he played it differently. But mm-hmm. how did he play and it? What 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 he went on there? He played it super well. Um, incredibly, incredibly restrained with the fire parts, but. You, he used the uh, the emulator move uh, that it triggers when you look into the eyes of someone and asks what fuels your desire. Uh, their player will tell you honestly. He used that move like five times. He was playing a character that wanted to hear about people, that wanted to learn about what people really wanted to do, and then exploit that for personal gain and the advancement of his culty aspirations. And it ruled. It was ended up being a really good character. And a ton of fun to have in the party. Um, throughout, there was... I don't think he used Burning Brand once. He uh, did some firebending uh, at one point. And that was this really great culmination of all of the emulator energy that had been building up at the table with this this character. Uh, all culminating in one particularly devastating uh, fire attack. And that was basically it for the flame part of the character for our first session. Um, so I'm actually kind of hoping now that next next time we uh, we play, we see a little bit more of the firebug side of it. You know, I almost want it to swing a little bit further in the other direction and get a little bit uh, a little bit burny. 
Dear so games, anyway, that was a real highlight for me. Deer games skew to a more um, combat heavy, less uh, intrigue heavy just often. Uh, not I typically try to keep them kind of half and half and read what the energy of the group is. Uh, this was a little bit more. This is a little bit more talky of a session. Uh, lots of intrigue, lots of getting acquainted with a new place, exploring. We'll talk a little bit about the place uh, later in our picture of this set uh, session. Can't wait. But the game was a ton of fun, and I think that Yawn the Immolator was a big part of what made it great. So that was a real highlight for me. I have a highlight from a PvP game that I was actually playing with some people from the Dungeon World Discord server. Shout out. And trying to get some more plugs into the community itself and also hadn't played PVP in a while and I was wanting to. And this was actually highlight as a player. So I was um, playing a third party playbook called the warlock that is kind of on that culty side that it's assumed in the playbook that they have a patron, which is some shadowy or maybe semi divine or even fiendish being that you kind of customize and then as long as you're keeping them appeased and fed with souls, they will give you magic. But your magic sort of evaporates if they're not happy with you. Um, and they were, in the narrative, the GM was sort of like feeding me marks that these people were called the Silver Court, and they're trying to collect all their children back to themselves or who they perceive to be their children. So they'll sometimes highlight someone to me and be like, we want this person to be on our side. However you have to do that, it needs to happen. And I basically, while the party was... Um, sleeping and they were dealing with an attack that happened during the night i went off to this town and was dealing with this blacksmith and i was going to see if he would come willingly and he came willingly and i was basically able to um he said like how can i help you and he was supposed to be this legendary blacksmith. and basically what happened was the gm said take the signature weapon move so it was really awesome that i was suddenly like oh i was hoping that you know i would get some kind of item because I, I could see there there was a blacksmith but it was really cool to have a move from another playbook because no one was playing actually someone was playing the fighter but they they were their fists were their signature weapon so they wasn't like i was going to impinge on there like having a cool sword or something but it was really cool that like a move was used as loot um that was sort of my highlight and also i guess a technique if you've never thought to do that it was really awesome yeah. i made a sword called ergyad which is the um the irish word for silver and it was this sword that glows when demons are nearby that was messy and forceful so fun Love stuff it. i'm going to steal that technique it it is not something i've done before giving a move i've given a move as loot before but never uh never a core move only ever compendium or custom moves i love that yeah, um, and i also think moment. it's really i really love the thing that you pointed out there that you weren't sort of stepping over the bound with the fighter in your party. There was a really nice balance to that story, which I think is something we can all learn from uh, as GMs and as well, players. Uh, he asked me, like, the the blacksmith was like, what what should I make for you? And I sort of, like, described what, what I was hoping to get, like, in character, saying I want something to, like, attack my enemies. And instead of the GM trying to design something and be like, is this what you want? He's just like, there's a move <laughs> where you can design it yourself. Take it, you know? And there's That's already great. the built-in balance of that um, where the signature weapon move has been playtested and everything that it's fun. Like, it's fun mm -hmm. to make something with it and you know the types of results that, gonna come out, that are going to come out of it are going to be um, on the scale that you want. So, Okay, that is very, very cool. Yeah. Um, I'm a Other big moves, fan of that highlight. You um, could give sorry. out the, uh, the 
Animal Companion move would be another one that would be a good one to give out because it yeah. similarly lets them sort of customize something. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones that might be good as well. Uh, cast a spell would probably be good. If someone like suddenly becomes the chosen of a god or something, they could like become mm-hmm. like a first level cleric. That would be um, a really nice loot piece. And these are big, big things. Like that's a big reward for a character. Um, even more so than XP because it basically gives them the equivalent of a whole level, right? That they get that move. Mm-hmm. So fun stuff. Very cool. Anyway, I think uh, with that in mind, we've we've gotten some cool examples of things happening in our games. And let's talk now about stuff that you can use in your games in our adventure workshop. Newly named. Newly named. Formerly the GM Academy, but now the Adventure Workshop, which I think is a better name for it anyway. Definitely gets at what we are trying to do here on our podcast. And we also wanted to avoid confusion with the excellent GM Academy that already exists in the Dungeon World Discord server, which is a sort of open table uh, discussion that happens uh, every once in a while that is recorded in a pseudo podcast format uh, that is called GM Academy. And that is all about that sort of thing. So go check that so out. Check as that well. out. Shout out. It's so good. Um, but anyway, it's time for us to jump into our adventure workshop. And today we're going to be talking about montaging. Montaging. So, montaging. What is it, Eamon? Montaging is a technique that most of us are probably familiar with from film, whereas something that would otherwise be a very long segment or perhaps a tedious segment um, is shown through quickly by supercutting together um, several disparate scenes that sort of jump in between each other. And we get to see just the important bits and flavorful bits of someone doing an action. A lot of times Mm -hmm. it's used for travel. If someone is going to go around the world, you might see a snippet of them talking to a border guard in Hong Kong and a snippet of them, you know, ducking under something in like Beirut and then like a snippet of them meeting a cafe in Paris. And then suddenly they're in England and you're like, okay, they stopped all along the way and you imagine everything happened. You just fill in in your brain, everything in between. But it is an excellent, excellent technique for role-playing games that is often overlooked because a lot of times something happens in a role-playing game that will slow down the action, but it's an important Mm -hmm. bit. And how are you going to do justice to that instead of just skipping unsatisfyingly ahead? Arthur, how can we use it? Dungeon World already has montaging built in. Moves like Undertake a Perilous Journey uh, are a great example. Carouse also has a little bit of that same energy where the players have a single role or a set of roles that more or less determine how a long leg of their journey will uh, will go. And the way that that takes away huge parts of the crunch of tabletop games lends itself better to storytelling and also I think lends itself a little bit better to player fun. So already we've got this sort of core idea of montaging built into our game, but I really don't want people to limit it down to just those moves. Uh, And to illustrate that, I'd love to give an example of something that happened in a recent game, uh, the same recent game from which Yon the Immolator was created. We were getting started with our adventure, and there was sort of a, a crossroads where we could have done one of two different things. Thing one was get really sidetracked with sort of a side quest in order to enable the character's stated actual goals. Thing two was skip over that whole thing and jump straight to the the meat of the adventure. Uh, to give a little bit more clarity, We the players st- were starting at the pier of a town from which they could take a ferry to an island chain off the coast. And all of their character goals were on that island chain. They weren't uh, mainland accessible. 
So we had a little salty old sea captain who was willing to ferry them across for a price. And what we ended up landing on for the price was, well, this salty old sea captain has a grudge against a leviathan of the deep. So we need to go and show that this that we can take out this leviathan and then the captain will, you know, sail us across. And we could have done a full five hour sit down session just getting this appeasing the salty old sea captain and getting across the the sea between the players and their objective. But also that wasn't really what we wanted to get out of the day. It was kind of a sidetrack. So we montaged the Leviathan hunt. And actually what the players ended up doing was having the druid transform into the Leviathan, quote unquote. The players pretended to kill it. And then uh, the sea captain appeased with thinking that its longtime enemy had been uh, deposed, you know, gave him a ride across. We montaged through that entire thing using a single animal transformation role from a druid and a single use of uh, one of the emulator moves that lets them create a weapon out of metal that is available to them. And then we had a full adventure following that that had already started with this great little contrivance that got the entire group kind of on the same page about what kind of tone we were going for, gave us an opportunity to leverage a bunch of different characters' abilities in a non-combat way, in a non-scene-oriented way. And we were able to montage through a lot of stuff that could have taken forever and get into the meat of the session. And I think that was really successful because everyone ended up having a ton of fun just having that story that we had skipped right through. And then on top of that, this second story that we really put a lot of thought and depth into. So yeah. Montaging is a super powerful technique. And I think one of the things that you hit on there was the fact that it can allow things that would otherwise take a long time go very quickly. And the reason why you might want that is because for a lot of people, they don't get to game often. And so they want to make sure that time is being used well in the session and that, you know, action is happening because sometimes you have a whole session and you, that was maybe four hours or more. And you sit back and you think what actually happened in character on screen during that session. And it sums up to not that much, maybe even one conversation or one fight could be a whole session. And that's okay. As long as that's what your group wants to go for. But if you're feeling like the game is going slow and it's not because of the player's desires and the GM's desires. It's just because of something mechanically is getting bogged down or story-wise or just mentally you're in the same space. That's when you know montaging could certainly be used there. And ultimately, anything could be montaged. The key is to know what you want to kind of take that uh, supercut snip-snip to. Um, There are other ways to use montaging that you might not be thinking of. Um, Built into the game, I'll start from there, there is dungeon... uh, not dungeon rations, uh, adventuring gear. Adventuring gear is a form of montaging because it allows you to abstract a shopping spree into just you get the stuff. And you can kind of, if we want to see that on screen, you can go around to each player and just see, give us a little 30 second uh, bit of like what your character does while while they're searching the market that allows us to see something flavor-wise. But mechanically, you just say, everyone take however many adventuring gear or something equivalent. Because adventuring gear, you probably know how it works if you play Dungeon World. Later on, you just have an item um, that you had the foresight to buy. And you don't have to specify what it is until you use it, because we assume that your character was planning ahead well. Um, But you can use other things um, in the same way that you do adventuring gear. Like if the players are looting a massive like workshop or something, instead of giving them a massive list of there are like four beakers and like five pairs of tongs and stuff, you can just say you get X many uses of 
workshop gear, mm-hmm. you know, or wizard's tower gear or kitchen gear, you know, if they want to like loot a whole like kitchen or something like that. And then later on, as long as they can, things fall into that category, they can just pull them out and it allows you to save a lot of those things. Um, time wise, other things, um, there is a technique called dungeon trailers that I will attribute to Ray Otis and his Plunderground series is where I first saw it. And this one is sort of montaging in reverse, where before the thing happens, you have the montage. And it basically works like this. Before the session, um, everyone, you introduce like what the sort of theme of the session is or don't, and go around to each person and tell them to just describe a random scene of what we're seeing on screen of just like, five to 10 seconds of something happening as if we were watching a trailer for the session before we play it. And then during the session, we try to hit those scenes and make them somehow happen. Um, and if we hit those scenes, you can optionally reward XP to everyone for like directing the story there. So one person might say, we see a dark stranger pull down his hood and turn around as rain streaks down his face and smile. And we see his teeth are glowing green, you know, and everyone's like, Ooh, what's that? Like, what's that? What are we going to find out? And you don't have to know what it is because during the session, we can just sort of direct the story there and just that'll coalesce organically. Someone else might see, we see a dragon streaking over an army and lighting up a whole battalion. Everyone's like, oh, that's going to be a thing now. So that's a technique that you can use before a session if you just want to get improv going and give people a chance to abstractly add to the fiction. And you certainly don't have to hit everything because sometimes you see stuff in a trailer that's never in the movie. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that, Arthur? I think that is so, so cool. It's a great cinematic technique that we can bring to our games and do something meaningful with. I also also have another another opportunity to montage with, uh, which is sort of the opposite of this, which is a great way to resolve a session. I definitely have been in sessions where we've gone way longer than I intended or where we're kind of running out of steam and we really need a break, but we haven't hit a good stopping point, especially in games where there's a clear ending to an arc or a campaign or an adventure, whatever it happens to be. A great way to talk through the climax and and aftermath of that arc is through a montage. We see individual shots of events in the town, events on the fields, events in the caves, whatever it happens to be. Everyone gets a chance to just turn off their brains a little bit, listen, take their time, take a break, and then get back into it or come back later. It's an opportunity to just take a step back, stop having to play out incredibly detailed narratives and still get through the storytelling and the fictional component that you really want to make sure you cover. There is, along with this technique, it spirals into a whole language of talking at the table and almost play culture um, that for some people might be a little unfamiliar and that's totally okay there are definitely strengths to this and what i'm talking about is a more directorial or cinematic approach to role-playing where the language we use at the table sometimes includes things like we cut over to this or smash cut to this or we fade in on this character almost as if you're trying to describe uh, a very visual thing because we're imagining that we are watching the movie of our adventure. And that's a lot of times used by different groups to create moments that otherwise would be impossible. Sometimes mm-hmm. even the GM can say elsewhere in the world and show you something going on that the players don't necessarily know about, like across the world. And oh, that can be yeah. very effective. You know, for I love things. doing that's that. That's a form of montaging. That definitely yeah. is. Um, I love doing that, especially for GM moves where thinking or the off-screen content of the move is what really matters. I love giving yeah. the players insight into something the characters don't know and letting them lean into it later. Uh, and that 
moment of, oh, we cut to the wizard in his tower cackling over the crystal ball. The camera pans out and reveals that he's watched this entire thing through his mystic scrying glass. That is something that's really effective and then leads very nicely into a longer, more cinematic moment that then you can expand out at any time to then get back into the real action of the game. Isn't one of the GM principles for Dungeon World think off screen as well? Think off screen. Yeah, this is one way to actually do that and make Mm -hmm. it matter. Sometimes you can almost use it as what I've heard described as a pressure release valve. If the characters are really under a lot of pressure and someone rolls a six minus and you're like, how could this get any worse? Um, You can have something bad happen off screen and we can see it now. The characters won't experience it until later. Like we can see someone like raiding their base back at home or like poisoning the well elsewhere, you know, Mm -hmm. or someone getting kidnapped and the players won't deal with that until later. So they're currently in the situation they're in they're not in like immediate lethal harm but you're still giving the full result of that six minus move just elsewhere and it'll be sort of a delay and it's a way to do foreshadowing really easily yeah the blades in the dark and forged in the dark set of games actually codify this into a mechanic which i have definitely stolen and i think also some powered by the apocalypse games do this apocalypse world might the sprawl definitely does the notion of having a fictional clock or some kind of checklist where a valid gm move is to advance the plot of something else happening in full view yeah. of the players is a great oh, yeah. opportunity, you know, especially when a clock is full. It's a great opportunity to montage through sort of the result of your of your move against them. We should talk about clocks maybe in a future. Yeah, episode, clocks that are was something... a very ripe topic. I love them. I've actually it was started a new using concept them. for me when I first yeah. heard of it. Um, I, last thing, at least for me, that I want to say about montaging is there's a technique that I first heard um, used. I think by Jason Cordova, it's one of his go-tos in the uh, Gauntlet community, just called Painting the Scene. And it's a way to use montaging as a way to elicit flavor from all the players and get good role-playing going, and at the same time check in on everybody like out of character and, and mm-hmm. make sure that the spotlight is shared. And a really easy way to use this is before going into a fight or something, before you like get into it and start making roles, uh, at, go around the table and ask every person, like, what is your character doing right now as we're preparing mm-hmm. for this fight? And then you can see, like, as they're about to go into battle, like, what do they do? Like, one person might describe that they're, like, summoning the winds and, like, preparing their magic and, like, swirling things around and muttering incantations. Another character might be, you know, saying a final prayer to their god and thinking of their family back home before they go in. You know, it, it encourages the player to think about like, in a specific moment what they're mm-hmm. doing. And then, based on that, almost mini plot hooks emerge. You're like, okay, let's explore that. And like the battle can start with you having the spotlight going into it because what you just said, like makes a lot of sense in this moment. Like, and it encourages them to interact with each other as well, respond to what they're doing. And you can also do it in a lot of different moments where you pause the action for a second and you go around and you check in on everyone as the camera sort of cuts to the whole party and sees what they're doing. And it also gets in your players' minds that at any given moment, um, they should be looking for opportunities for the character to be doing interesting things so that when it comes to them, they're like, oh, this guy, that was such a good RP moment. Like, what's my character? Like, what's what's the cool about him? What's his deal? And then they can really get that good RP going. I've had great success with that at the table. Totally. So I hope that you get an opportunity to montage in your own games. Let us know how it goes. We'll have contact information in the show notes and also in the... Uh, you know, emails section will give you a little bit more details. Reach out to us. Let us know how montages go for you or times when you've used them. And we'll uh, take a look at those and maybe share some of them on the air next time. But with that in mind, 
or we'll just share a, a smash cut of responses. <laughs> yes, we'll go through them in little individual scenes, and then eventually we'll all be stronger and capable of fighting Drago or whoever the villain of this Rocky movie is. Anyway, <laughs> I think it's time for some meta talk. All right, this week I wanted to talk about something that happened on the Dungeon World Discord server, a discussion I saw going on. I popped on there one day and there was a new channel set up called, uh, I think it was either called Rules Theory or Game Theory. I think it was Rules Theory. Um, actually, it might have been Game Theory. I don't know. But people were talking, it looked like two people were having a discussion in probably general or something that really started spiraling into this long discussion on something. And then <laughs> mods swooped in and were like, hey, if you want to talk about this, go to a channel dedicated for it. Here, I'll make one for you. And basically, it was two people having a conversation about whether changing a fundamental aspect of a game for your home game and playing it differently is good, and also whether it is sort of respectful to the creators or not. I will summarize both sides of the argument um, very briefly, and then I would love to hear you weigh in on this, Arthur. Um, one side of the argument says this. Change games however you want. Role-playing games are a free city. Anyone in their home can take a game hack it all to pieces and play their own game, and uh, that's fine. You know, you can do whatever you want in your own game, and you're still playing whatever game you say you are, you're just playing your own version of it. And you don't have to call it a hack, because it's already built into the concept of role-playing games that you can do whatever you want. The other person saying, anytime you change a game, even slightly from the text, you are not playing that game anymore. And don't say that you're playing that game, because you might offend the person who made it and misrepresent their work. And if you change something about a game, you are playing your own hack of the game and not the game itself. And some games really suffer from this because they're designed to be played in a very specific way. And they cited some examples like uh, different Apocalypse World games like um, Night Witches or things where the game is designed on a very specific premise. Night Witches specifically you play as female fighter pilots and I think like World War II or something. So if you change those elements of the game, it would the tone of the game would greatly change. So um, what are your initial thoughts on that? Yeah, I have a couple. One, so I've talked a little bit before, I think, on the show, and certainly with you directly, Eamon, about how for a while my Dungeon World game was more of a Dungeon Planet game. Uh, it, it was sort of the, in much the same way that Super Mario World ends up a Super Mario Galaxy, we were doing Dungeon World to Dungeon Galaxy. It was a ton of fun. And also a complete texture swap of what Dungeon World is kind of about at its core, and we still call it a Dungeon World game pretty much throughout. And... I think the reason why we were comfortable doing that is because we were still playing the Dungeon World rules as written, and we were still representing it as that amongst ourselves and in discussions about what we were doing. So kind of, you know, it definitely requires a little bit of nuance, because at the same time, if I were to go and start an actual play podcast about playing uh, Dungeon World, but I were to have the rule be everyone rolls 3d6 and takes the top two, that gets a little weird at the same time, and it gives people to a totally inaccurate picture of what it is actually like to play the game and i think that might be where this breaks down is when you start to present this the game that you're playing as being something that it is not to other people who don't necessarily know it can be misleading and i think that's an opportunity for feelings to get hurt on the creator's part so that's kind of my initial yeah. thoughts uh let's let's dive a little deeper on this i think the one principle that should just be kept in mind is be honest about what you're doing and open and provide context. Because the only time the creator's feelings are going to be hurt and have any reason to be 
um, is not when you're at home playing your own game. Like, oh gosh, I hope someone somewhere isn't taking my art and playing it wrong. Because anytime you publish something, you're opening yourself up to that. Like someone can read your book mm -hmm. and get the wrong idea, or they can be at home on the internet looking at a picture of your art and just interpret it wrong and you can't do anything about that and they can be at home in their home game playing a role-playing game and certainly no one could stop them from doing that but it's when you record yourself doing it and post it online and say like yep this is what this game is all about and then then you kind of effectively misrepresent it if you were playing a totally different version and passing it off as like this is what this game is all about because that you know someone can get the wrong idea about the game so if you're if you're modifying a game especially heavily say like you know these are the changes we made and this is why and we're doing it because it's all fun and games like for our own stuff and i don't think anyone can have a, a reasonable argument against that, especially if you are um, in consensus with at your table. Totally. Then, if you're playing with strangers, or if you're playing with people you recently met, or if you're playing in a con game, always advertise your game as this is the experience that you're going to get if you play this game. Because if someone's like jumping into a, a long session, especially for a role-playing game, there's sunk cost of time. And if they were looking for a certain experience and they sort of got hoodwinked into another one, that can feel bad. Like if you say, we're playing Dungeon World, and then you're using a d20 all of a sudden and you're doing a lot of fifth edition stuff because that's how you like to play people might feel cheated i don't know if that's the right word but it's totally fine as long as you give a heads up yeah and cheated that's is totally a, a, a like i would feel cheated if i were to go to a dungeon world table at a con and then find out that we're going to be playing fifth edition but you know at the same time i'm not opposed to someone saying hey we're going to be playing dungeon world but we're going to be using this custom set of playbooks I, and I think your point about it coming down to honesty and precision in how you present what you're playing is really the thing that makes a difference there. And I also want to make sure that we make a distinction between hacking a game and changing it and creating your own spin on things and playing it wrong, especially playing it wrong in front of an audience. You know, I think one thing that I really like about John Harper's Blades in the Dark is that one of the first things the book says is don't be afraid to get it wrong at first, because as you play, you'll start to realize that what you were doing wasn't quite right. And then you'll learn how to do it correctly from there. And I think there's a big difference between, oh, I got this rule wrong and adventuring gear totally doesn't work that way. I'm so sorry to then, uh, oh, in our game, adventuring gear has to be decided at the town and then you don't get to pick anything different later. I, I think that's a key distinction as well. That's very good. I, I want to say something based off that. Um, firstly, in discussions, telling someone that they're doing something wrong has certain connotations to it. And I, we, I want to talk about what constitutes doing something wrong in a role-playing game. Um, secondly, um, the, uh, the times that these sorts of discussions get heated about role-playing games are when it devolves into pedantics. When someone says like, they want to be able to tell someone you are not doing this thing you say you are just for the sake of being able to say that. And that feeds into what is wrong in a role-playing game. And I think that there's one flavor of wrong is doing something because you think that's how to play the game, and the, and but it's just simply actually not. And it's a matter of ignorance. that you, you were unaware that you were doing something incorrectly because you misread a rule or something like that. That you could say that that person is playing the game wrong because they thought it was played one way and they mm -hmm. were simply incorrect. But if you are fully conscious of something and you are making a deliberate choice to play it some way, you are leveraging a tool of role-playing games, which is fluidity. They are very easy to play around with because you don't have to change code. You don't have to reshoot something. You don't have to like delete pages in a book and rewrite them. You simply have to speak differently and maybe even roll dice again. 
that is something that allows you to do a complete texture swap of a game very easily. That is not playing a game wrong. That is leveraging a possibility that role-playing games have and a strength of role-playing games, which is that it's very easy to fluidly do that. Another strength of role-playing games is consensus makes right. If everyone on the table agrees that if this is a way to do something, it is not wrong by definition because you are playing a game that you have all agreed on. So there's, but in that space, one person can agree on something and the others not. And then you are playing wrong, so to speak, by contradicting someone at the table or shutting them down or hurting their feelings or going into territory that is uncomfortable to them. That is a way to play the game wrong because you are wronging someone on a basic human level. You're mm -hmm. just being a jerk, you know. Totally. And there is one other example of this that I have seen in a couple of games that I've been involved with. There is a lot of disagreement, I guess is one way to put it. But just generally, there are a lot of different ways to approach bonds, especially forming bonds in a session one or a session zero. And I think that's one place where playing it wrong, and by here, when I say wrong, I mean playing it against the wishes of the table can really lead to some hurt feelings. A lot of the default bonds in Dungeon World assert something about your relationship to the other character in which the other character had some agency. I've been at tables where the rule is you can pick whatever you want for the other part of your bond and they have to go with it. And if everyone at the table agrees that that's fine, then that's great. I've also played at tables where right off the bat, we've said, hey, some of these bond statements are a little bit strong. Maybe we should check and make sure that everything is reciprocal before we pick bonds for each other. I don't actually know what the real way to play that is. I've seen it done both ways. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, oh, it has to be done this way. Oh, the rules say this. But it definitely is a place where feelings can easily get hurt and ownership of characters can be subverted slightly. And I'd say subverting ownership of characters can be a good thing sometimes, especially when as a group you're approaching it to the, at the table as we as a group want to share agency over this fiction. But at the same time, that doesn't work for all groups. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up bonds because a lot of this comes to head ahead in that. And it's because it's a very social mechanic, which makes it potentially a fraught mechanic. Um, some people would say the correct way to play is whatever the rules say, but the rules and bonds are a bit ambiguous. Then some people would say the correct way to play is however Sage and Adam play. And Sage and Adam play in such a way that you talk with the other player. You're mm -hmm. like, I think this would be cool for us to have this relationship. And you just simply check with them. And if they're okay with that, then go ahead. And what you were touching on is the fact that if you're like, you stole from me and I have a grudge against you. They're like, what? No, I wouldn't steal. You know, you, you are sort of creating fiction and perhaps even prescribing actions that someone has done in the past or what you at least think that they, they have. Um, and some players, like you said, might not be okay with that, but just simply ask and it'll go fine for bonds. Mm -hmm. Another thing, which I want to tie back to montages is some players find trouble resolving bonds where they're like, uh, I don't know how to get this in my like hints to this other person. I want to explore this aren't really going well, and we never really get it. And I want that XP and I want to move past this relationship and write something else. You can ask out of character in a sort of directorial way and frame up a scene, so to speak, as it's called. You can say, hey, we're about to go into this keep. And I think there's going to be maybe we could work for a moment in there where I get to see your character do something dishonest and you can decide what that is. Um, and my character sort of will react to that organically. Um, what do you think about that? And then you can sort of, that's not railroady because it's two players deciding that they want to frame up a scene. And GMs love that because you're thinking in character and out of character at the same time and trying to make a cool moment happen. And that's how bonds can actually get resolved because you can say, let's touch on this bond. Like I have this mm -hmm. bond. What do you feel? What do you think about that? A lot of times as a GM, 
if players are good about this and they're framing up scenes with each other and looking to make these sort of tag teams, it knits the party tighter together out of character, even if in character they're creating, creating intrigue. And sometimes I let the XP go both ways. Like if both people were instrumental in a bond actually getting resolved, I'm like, you both get XP because you were both involved in creating that scene. So yeah, that's to, one little To that hack. point, a player tip, I have never met a GM and I have never been a GM that didn't like it when players made it easier for me to come up with what the next scene is. So take advantage of that when you're playing. If there's a scene you want to see, don't be afraid to advocate for it. Yeah, you can be explicit. Like there's flag posting for, um, you know, what you want in the adventure. And even just your playbook choice says you want certain types of things. Like you want there to be combat if you pick the fighter. Mm -hmm. Like that is very much like kind of telegraphing to everyone what you want to do. But don't be afraid to say like, hey, I'd love to see more of this or I'd love to see this aspect of my character get explored you know he he's secretive he keeps secrets and i want people to like press on that you know mm -hmm. and that's why people keep rewriting bonds and creating keys and, and flags and all these other mechanics is because they were trying to make it easier for people to engage with those sorts of things we could probably talk about that later but oh, for sure just from a, a perspective of how to play the game right communicating with someone will almost in all cases clear that up yeah and, the, i think uh, the yeah. only way to play these games wrong is to expect everyone else to read your mind about what you think the right way to do things is yeah funnily enough that's also how to do out of character relationships wrong so, for sure just in general everyone out there in listener land don't ever sacrifice someone's feelings for the sake of a game no for matter what that sure game is. yeah adam Coble in his office hours chat and video series goes into a lot of that about how really all these questions are relationship questions so yeah yeah we'll we'll have a we'll have a relationship advice podcast at some point i'm sure Eamon. but yeah, for now should. i think it's time to picture something else yeah let's talk about some actual adventure stuff yes i would like for you to picture the parnathusian archipelago an island chain perfect for a side adventure if you can convince the salty old fairy man to take you across. This is the archipelago that I alluded to earlier today as the adventure that Jan the Emulator came from and also the adventure in which we used montaging as a way to get things kickstarted. And I wanted to share a little bit about why I think this setting works really well for a side adventure or a one-shot or just as a way to kickstart something generally. Island games have a couple of cool advantages. One, in order to get there, you have to take a boat. And what can you bring on a boat? Well, you, you are limited to the stuff you can carry in a bag or on your back, which means that a player character can say, yes, I have a horse, but bringing that horse across maybe isn't necessarily feasible. It can be a good way to leverage almost a, not a reset, but a come down in power and gear as a way to, you know, bring things back to basics, which is, I think, in part why it's great for side content. So I'd, I'd like to give a couple of examples of things that you can do on your island chain to have a little bit of fun with your players. On your very own island chain. Yes, your private island chain. So islands typically, especially in coastal regions in general, tend to be epicenters of trade because boats can get there easily and boats come from far off lands bringing exotic spices and gold, I guess, you know, valuable stuff. And... Having an epicenter of trade as part of your game gives you a lot of opportunities for political intrigue, financial intrigue, um, people mur murder merchants in order to get their stash, and merchants then need revenge or protection. But then, on top of that, we're in a fantasy setting. We're in a world of adventure. 
not the game world of adventure, but the it, it's a there's adventure to be had. And what better way to have an adventure than to go protect the boat and then suddenly, oh my goodness, there's a sea monster that is ravaging trade routes that have been used for generations. Well, why is the sea monster doing this? How can we defend these boats from the sea monster? So that's one avenue. You've got your mercantile intrigue and adventure right there in front of you. Thing two, in our island setting, we had a government structure where the royal family was magically, or, or magically is, is, is not quite the right word, but were sustained in over long, over centuries long rules by magic, which, you know, in an insular community can be a great opportunity to shake things up and be a destabilizing force as adventurers in a way that isn't contrived or, you know, out of out of character, I guess. And, you know, also islands have navies. And sometimes the idea of being the only thing between this island naval invasion of the mainland and, you know, the islands themselves, that can be a really fun setting to get an adventure started. So the Parnathusian Archipelago. Perfect for your next vacation and or side adventure. Voidlight folds up the brochure and puts it back into his pack. <laughs> I like that. Islands are rich with just flavor and plot hooks in general, and they have been a staple of a lot of fantasy RPGs as a way to get things going and make them interesting. Because even when you look at a map, you're like, ooh, what's that island? Mm -hmm. Have you, even in the very rich uh, default setting for D&D, &D, which is the uh, the Sword Coast in Faerun. The Sword Coast is riddled with small islands off the coast, the Moonshay Islands primarily. And you're like, God, there's got to be something interesting going on in this island because it's almost this sort of self-contained land of mystery. Mm. And it, it, I, I once was like, when I was new to D&D, &D, being like, what's going on there? Looked it up, and oh, sure enough, one of them is ruled by a despotic vampire secretly, and one of them has, you know, a special type of elves that are only found there. Because, of course, how yeah. can interesting things not be going on of course. on these islands? And, of course, one last thing. There's no more natural place for a volcano than a volcanic island. Yeah. And volcanoes are inherently cool. They're a place of power for your wizard. They're an opportunity to get a rare kind of metal for your fighter to forge directly into their sword. They are a place where... Well, where a god, where the cleric's god once smote a mighty kingdom, and now the cleric can go there and worship at the shrine of their fallen lord. Or the immolator can bend some lava. Lots of great options. Use islands. Islands are fun. There is a game called Sunless Sea that is a sort of uh, survival and exploration and at sometimes horror game that can be played for PC and iPad by Fail Better Studios. But it opens with a quote that comes on the screen in the loading screen by Joseph Conrad saying that the sea has never been friendly to man. At most, it has been the accomplice of human restlessness. So interesting things always happen on the sea and the sea is always uh, a fickle, a fickle mistress. Certainly. Every coastal civilization, even in real life, has always had some sort of god of the sea or some sort of uh, spiritual element connected with that. If you have a druid in your game, um, maybe spin the idea by them of them being an aquatic-themed druid. Like, I've seen druids that just, like, all of their stuff is uh, aquatic-themed. And there's tons of different seabirds, like, even if they're away from the ocean. Also, on the list... I think, if I'm remembering correctly, the Sapphire Isles is, like, something that you can pick mm -hmm. as, like, your land. And even if no one picks the Druid, you could have an NPC who is, you know, that. That's just so much flavor right there. And it's easy to keep it in the theme and make it all 
seem like it uh, goes together. Totally. And speaking of things that go together, it's time for us to go together with the community to our emails. I like that segue. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So we have some listener emails. Huzzah, huzzah. So people have sent in to our Proton Mail account, which you too can send into, and we'll get that address in just a minute. But I would like to um, listen to the, this question by uh, Fred Bednarski. Um, he is saying, how do you make your boss encounters truly epic? I'm sure that we have all read the 16 HP Dragon, and he links to that, and we'll include that link in the show notes, and use narrative to make battles more interesting. Personally, I use this narrative positioning in basically every combat scene. This makes for really cool and cinematic combat, but has a drawback when it comes to boss battles. Because boss battles now work in a similar manner to normal encounters, he says, players need to think of creative action during combat, etc., but also do it on your run-of-the-mill encounters. He says, I'm facing a dilemma. I either tone down my other encounters to make the really important battles stand out, or find a way to up the ante to the really important battles. Help. And he says, a little addendum. I started thinking about this because I discovered Rhapsody of Blood. And he links to that as well. Which uses different moves for normal mooks as it does for bosses. Hmm. But before I'll go adding mechanics to Dungeon World, I would like to see what other options are there to make players feel the difference when facing against the big bad Fred. Um, and Rhapsody of Blood, like I said, we'll link to it. But that is the sort of stretch tier alt skin of this other game. Um, yeah, but anyway, you can go check that on your own time. It's not strictly Dungeon World related. Um, to answer that first point there, where um, I want to quickly inject where you use different rules for normal mooks as you do for bosses, that's almost a certain style of play, and I have seen that done. Um, basically, uh, you don't really have to hack a lot of rules. If someone gets a hit on just a normal enemy, they die. So if if, uh, if you successfully roll to hit this normal enemy, um, they just die. You don't have to like worry about tracking all their health. And only for like lieutenants or like you know really interesting or big monsters do you actually have to granularly like track how much health they're losing. That's just an easy way to play. Other games uh, do that. Um, Joe Banner, who makes a lot of Dungeon World content, has a game called um, Sky Pirates. I'll link to it. It's mm -hmm. it's called um, Sky Something, and it's about you know doing a Lady Blackbird style um, Sky. Uh, airship pirate type game um but it, it basically works like that where like normal mooks uh they have one health uh, for all intents and purposes if, if you get a hit on them they die mm -hmm. um, but for other people you get to actually see that cinematic uh you know video game style the the boss battle should be like a scene unto itself um and this guy's question should you tone down other encounters or up the ante <laughs> i think you would and i would both agree arthur if something's working at the table and you're doing, you know, great GMing and like making even a generic encounter very interesting, don't tone that down at all. That means you're doing yeah, it right. Definitely up the ante. You're doing it great. Yeah, definitely up the ante. Well, how could you make? I'm going to toss it over to you, Arthur. A really epic boss. Oh fight. boy, do I ever have some ideas about this? So, think about great boss fights from video games. It's usually not about how much HP the guy has or. Uh, what kind of sword she's wielding it's really much more about the emotional stakes that you as a party and your opponent have built up over time thing one for motivating a great boss battle is don't just drop a boss on them 
make that boss matter to the characters. Make the concept of defeating this enemy a worthy goal for more reasons than just it's the thing in the last room of the dungeon. So that setup can really lend a lot of emotional weight to the beginning and, and conclusion of your encounter. But as far as actually making the combat interesting, I've got a couple of ideas for that as well. Thing one is really think carefully about what actually triggers moves. One trick that I use for describing a particularly capable swordsman or somebody who has impenetrable armor, for instance, is to change the, con not change, but to really think about what triggers a hack and slash against that opponent. Hack and slash triggers when you engage an enemy in melee. Well, you can how can you consider it engaging an enemy in melee if every time you swing at the swordsman, he's able to, to guard so perfectly that your weapon flies off? That won't trigger hack and slash at all. At most, that'll trigger defy danger. So think carefully about what triggers moves. And use that as a way to make your enemy more potent. Now, it sounds like you might already be doing this in your general fights, your typical combat encounters. So if that's the case, I would suggest thinking about the setting of your boss battle a little bit more. Um, one, yeah, the layer. Yeah, one really cool boss battle. Uh, I think that this was a Mike Krahulik of Penny Arcade, a Mike Krahulik design. And this is really more of a D&D &D thing. Um, but he had a boss battle that, that took place on a Mario Galaxy-style series of spheres where the sphere's gravity was enough that you could stand on it and walk around it as though it were a, a single plane. But then you could jump from one to the other. And then he had a mechanic of them orbiting around a central point and having the boss more mobile than the players could be. Think about how your setting can make that boss battle epic in a way that your just the one-on-one -on -one fight isn't. And to that point, don't be afraid to add more mechanics. If your boss is a literal big bad, we're talking world-crushing demon or giant or Tarasque or whatever it happens to be, then maybe the process of subduing the opponent is not about the one-on-one -on -one combat, but it's about protecting the wizard during the ritual or about getting the ranger to the catapult so that they can layer they can lay in the perfect trajectory for the rock that will end the campaign whatever it happens to be don't be afraid to just inject a little extra mechanical interest into that you don't need to create a whole new mechanical system like a whole new set of rules or a whole new set of moves but you can just create the opportunity for an atypical move to be used and make that the center of your encounter so that's what i got what makes a boss what makes a boss a boss is not just that they are really good at something, but that they're really interesting. And to make them stand out, they should be able to operate and affect the environment and create change in dynamic situations more than a normal person could. If an average orc can kill someone, and the only thing that separates you know, the massive orc chieftain from a normal orc is that they can kill people better and faster, then there's a missed opportunity there. Um, think about... Uh, take a page from D&D's books, and it'll probably work even better in Dungeon World, of layer actions. It's really fun when I'm reading through the DMG uh, and looking at all the different types of dragons and all the Beholder and Aboleths and all, all these different creatures that they have specific things that when they're in their domain, they can do to influence the environment. Like certain types of dragons uh, in D&D in can change even like the weather like nearby their lair, or they can like call up ice walls from the grounds because they're in their element and, the, and this is their spot more so um in a narrative game where 
any place can be the nest that a certain character is is found in uh when 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 you're fighting a wizard on his home turf in his tower he better be doing more than just straight up casting spells at you directly from his person everything around is potentially a tool or a trap and things like that and likewise when a chieftain uh, an orc chieftain or something is in their own base they should be able to call on the hordes they should be able to call in some experimental weapons or orc creatures that have been hidden under tiger traps you know those sorts of things because that creates a whole environment and it also solves the problem of like man my bosses die really quickly because they're just one guy against five pcs and every time they take an action the pcs take five actions which is alleviated anyway a little bit in dungeon world by the fact that in any given player move the world is responding back and people don't sit around getting hit until it's their turn but what do you think about that? What do you think about uh, an environment being part of the battle? You touched on totally. it a lot with those spheres. Yeah. So environment should be part of the battle. And one thing that can make a boss battle really memorable as well, get, get a little extra spark in there, look at the other DM moves that you have available. Offer golden opportunities for classes, for sure, but also offer hard choices. It for One thing that you can do, for instance, is give the thief an opportunity to either strike the boss's back in an undefendable killing strike, or they can snatch the messenger pigeon that's about to spirit away a little parcel of gold. Hmm. Now we have an interesting choice. Or or information, like a secret. Like the boss is, oh, I'm about to die. You know, you're not going to get to my secrets. Mm -hmm. I'll send them away or something. That's very interesting, especially like time pressure. Mm. Yeah. I'll definitely use that. Cool. I've also had before um, red herrings or things where you sort of switch it up on someone where you think the boss is defeated, but then there's more. Mm-hmm. Not just multi-phase that, oh, he's still bosses. alive. Yeah, multi-phase bosses. There's one where I found this whole dungeon, and the di- idea of it is it's inside of a tesseract, and I'm definitely going to talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit more in a later picture of this. But my idea was you fight just a sort of mundane wizard or something, and then you go to loot his body and examine his necklace, and you suddenly get sucked inside the necklace. And that's a whole dungeon unto itself. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, this boss fight goes on, you know? Yeah. And then that you could also tight. you could also do stuff where you split the party and have two separate objectives that work in consonance with each other and have things happening on one party's side uh, then affect things happening on the other side. There, that is a... Oh, so many ideas. Yeah, don't... Be afraid to really go all out for your boss fights because it sounds like upping the ante is what you want to do. So hopefully some of those will work for your group. If they don't, send us email and we'll talk a little bit more. We'll come up with more stuff. And if you use any yeah, of these tell ideas, us what your, uh, tell us what your normal encounters are like if they're so epic. Yeah, like, yeah, Fred, teach we'd love us. To hear it. Heck, you know, email us. We'll have you on the show. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I really want to hear a little bit more about these very cool encounters. Yeah. All right now. Well, it's been a it's been a minute. Yeah, we've we've got. I think this might end up being our longest episode. Certainly our uh, longest episode post launch. But with that in mind, uh, I think we have one last email, maybe or. Sure, um, we have, uh, Lachiel or Lachiel uh, Vahir saying. I've been listening since episode one, but have not written in yet because, well, I'm lazy. Hmm. Anyway, I really enjoyed this week's episode, especially the map creator link. I think he was talking about the one uh, where we talked about jumping from player to GM uh, last episode, I believe. That sounds about right. And I frequently use, and he links to dmuse.com as a source for all sorts of things, but especially names and the settlement generator. But given my game shifted over to Monster of the Week a year ago, I'm not playing much Dungeon World these days. But I may get a new game going sometime this year. Thanks for the inspiration and 
insight. Robert, a.k.a. LaShield. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for writing in and letting us know about this very cool resource. I gave it a quick skim, and boy, it is filled with content. Filled, yeah. I say. So check it out. We'll It'll be linked in the, in the show, notes. show notes. And thank you again for mailing in. We're looking forward to more questions for next week. We should be back in a consistent recording schedule now that we have new microphones and less just responsibility in life generally i hope that would keep us from getting together and recording now the vacations are over and the ever-present looming threat of office work has kind of stabilized a little bit more at least for me <laughs> the upcoming uh, couple of episodes should be fresh and new and exciting so stay tuned episodes release on mondays but with that in mind and if you uh out there in listener world want to write in you can absolutely do that at play to find out at protonmail.com that's p-l-a-y-t-o-f-i-n-d-o-u-t at p-r-o-t-o-n mail.com mm -hmm. protonmail.com and we also have a twitter account that you can uh follow or tweet at at uh play to find out but that is p-l-a-y numeral two f-i-n-d-o-u-t um yeah and or what is uh, the URL for our website, Arthur? Well, you can check out playtofindout.net. That's P-L-A-Y-T-O-F-I-N-D-O-U-T dot net. Although if you're listening to this, chances are you've already gone there to subscribe. With that in mind, though, if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more and help us reach more people, drop us a review on iTunes and Google Play, especially iTunes. That I don't make the rules. I just follow them. And let us know what you think and what you want to see more of. And that will really help us get out there accumulating some new listeners and getting our messages out to more people. We hope that you found the show useful and that we've inspired you to do some new stuff in your game. Try something a little different. But with that in mind, I think that's all we have for you today. They played and they found out, Arthur. They certainly did. Well, that's me, Arthur, or Art Projects on the Discord. And I've been Eamon, or Voidlet, on this Discord. It's been a pleasure having you at the table today. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye.